triune God, help us to know the Scriptures and the power of our mighty God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our scripture this morning, of course, is Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. It will be the text throughout Advent. And as I mentioned before, I want to acknowledge uh, Walter Brueggemann and his book, Names for the Messiah, which has been an inspiration for this Advent sermon series as we look at these royal titles of the name of our Lord, of our King Jesus. Isaiah 9, verse 6. For a child has been born for us, a son given to us, Authority rests upon his shoulders, and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is the word of the Lord. I saw the crown of France laying on the ground, so I picked it up with my sword. Napoleon Bonaparte. Near the very end of the 18th century, the French had their experiment, their revolution, their experiment with democracy, and it brought into their society a reign of terror, it brought in chaos, it brought in instability and disorder. And the military genius and the strength of Napoleon seemed very appealing to a people living in such chaos. And on November 9th, 1799, Napoleon staged a coup d'etat and appointed himself First Council of France. The revolution was over. I saw the crown of France laying on the ground, so I picked it up with my sword. This morning, we're looking at the second of the four royal and regal titles given to Jesus Christ by the prophet Isaiah. And this morning, we're focusing on that second one, Mighty God. And the meaning of that title is not hard to grasp. I don't have to do any fancy types of exegesis here. It's pretty simple. You get the idea that Mighty God, that that title conveys a sense of power and authority and strength. It is about power, Almighty God. Isaiah tells us that this coming king, King Jesus, will not only be wise and wonderful, but he will possess and display great and tremendous power. He will be the mighty God. And the question I want to answer this morning or explore this morning is what is the nature of King Jesus' power? What is the nature of it? What type of power does he possess? And is it unique as we look at power that we see around us in our world, is it different from the various forms of power operative in our world and around us? And in order to answer those questions, what I'd like to do is look at three different forms of power this morning and then consider how they relate to Jesus, how they relate to this one who bears the title, Mighty God. Eighty. That's the number of women who have accused Hollywood mogul, once Hollywood mogul, Harvey Weinstein of sexual misconduct of some sort of abusing his power. Eight minutes and 46 seconds. That's how long a Minneapolis police officer had his knee on the neck of George Floyd. 85. 
That's the number, or at least approximately. It's hard to keep up with the number of executive orders issued by Governor Cuomo in 2020. 156,000. That's the number of Allied forces that landed on the beaches of Normandy as part of the D-Day invasion. Now, what is the commonality among those very disparate, different forms of numbers? What are they all examples of? Well, they're all examples of a form of power, a form of power that we might call compulsory power or power by force or power by coercion. It's a form of power operative in our society. It is all around us. It's a power that's possessed by people who are in positions of power. It's a power possessed by the state to coerce, to compel people to do things through force. And most explicitly, we see it in war. War is a compulsory power of the state. As Clausewitz, the great military strategist, put it, war is merely the continuation of policy by other means, by the means of force. You have diplomacy to try to accomplish something, to get your aims or your agenda accomplished, but you also have the barrel of a gun, a continuation of policy by other means. And as my illustration displays, this type of power can be evil. I think we would all agree that the George Floyd example, the Harvey Weinstein example, are forms of evil, kind of coercive power. It can also be good. This type of power can be good. We can, obviously, the D-Day invasion, right? The liberation of France. It was power by force, but it was good. It liberated people. And this form of power can also be debatable. Some of you agree wholly with Governor Cuomo's executive orders and that particular use of power, and some of you think it's a violation of constitutional rights of your personal freedoms, and you disagree with it. But the question I have this morning is, what about Jesus? Did Jesus ever use this type of power, this compulsory power, this compelling power, this uh, achieving one's aims through a form of force? Well, let's think about that. One day, Jesus was in a synagogue in Capernaum, and there was a man there with an unclean spirit. And Jesus came and confronted the man, confronted the unclean spirit, and rebuked him and said, Be silent, come out of him. And the spirit, of course, had no choice. It was compelled to come out of the man, and it did. That's compulsory power. On a different day, Jesus was on a boat in the midst of a storm with his disciples, and they were all uh, freaking out about it, right? They were afraid. They were afraid of their, for their lives. And Jesus stood up in the boat, and he spoke to the winds, and he spoke to the waves, and he said, Peace, be still. And guess what? They were compelled to comply with his command, his powerful command. Could of course cite many other examples of that. Jesus did possess this power. He did use this power. He had the power, this compulsory power. I would of course argue that he always used that power in ways for good. The D-Day example, if you will, to liberate people, to free them from their circumstances. He never used it in a manipulative or exploitative manner. He used it for the good of others. But Jesus used, possessed, and displayed compulsory power. 
Let me take another power, another form of power, and look at it this morning. I'll call this expert power or information power, or you might call it knowledge power. Irregardless of how you feel about Dr. Fauci, you have to admire his credentials. Now, right now, some of you are thinking to yourself, did pastor just use the word or non-word irregardless? And others of you are thinking to yourself, did pastor just endorse Dr. Fauci? I don't trust him. I am suspicious of experts. Now, both of those thoughts are connected to the second form of power, this power that's so prevalent, particularly in our age and in our world, expert power, knowledge power, or information power. People judge you by the words you use. It's a way of showing whether you're in the certain class, if you're part of the educated elite. It's a way of telling who is in and who is out. When people who are highly educated hear someone use the word irregardless, they immediately conclude the speaker is outside of the club, so to speak. As an aside, I understand the Merriam-Webster dictionary now has irregardless in the dictionary as a word, so it's not a non-word any longer. Sadly, that's the case. What's next? Supposedly, that was going to be in there. See, I'm a snob like everybody else. Okay, so, <laughs> but I remember working in a law firm, the first law firm I worked for, it was kind of a white shoe, uh, a traditional law firm, and going there to work, and one of the things I had to do was to learn how to speak English. Now, I was already an English-speaking person, but there was a certain form of English to be spoken, and I had to learn that, this language, to, to really advance my career, to be accepted in the club, to not reveal myself as an outsider. Knowledge is power. And one of the ways that's demonstrated is through this language power in our culture. Power is also demonstrated through credentials, right? You, you have a certain authority if you have letters before or after your name, right? Doctor or, or PhD or Esquire or Reverend or whatever. There's, it's, it's a sense of communicating, of broadcasting power and authority. Knowledge is power. And experts and people with credentials do many good things. Our society needs this. I'm not speaking against it, but also throughout history, that many bad things, right? You have the power to justify all kinds of things through knowledge, right? I mean, racism has been justified through such things. A war has been justified through such things. The Holocaust was an intellectual enterprise justified by experts, by elites of society. Watch the 2001 film Conspiracy with Kenneth Branagh, Colin Firth. Great movie. But there you will see evil in that sense of the manipulation of power by people in positions of power, people who possess knowledge and credentials. It can be used for good. It can be used for ill. I'm not anti-intellectual by any means at all. Now, I think it's quite clear that Jesus, of course, possessed information power, right? Knowledge power and used it. He was, of course, omniscient. He knew all things and he used that power to advance his cause, his agenda. 
Jesus knew what was in the hearts of people, what was in the minds of people, and that knowledge was power for him. It helped him, as I said, to advance that agenda. John 13, 11, for he knew who was to betray him. John, 22, John 2, 24, I should say. But Jesus, on his part, would not entrust himself to them. Why? Because he knew all people. He knew what was in the hearts of people. He had knowledge, power. Again, I would argue that he only used that power to achieve the ends of salvation, to fulfill the Father's will, and to advance the cause of the kingdom. But Jesus clearly possessed this type of power in a way we could say par excellence. The third form of power I want to consider this morning is the power of rewards. The power of rewards. Now, what's this? There's this great scene in, um, I, like, I love Martin Scorsese as a director, and there's a great scene in uh, the film, uh, which I, do, I don't recommend that you watch, uh, the, the Wolf of Wall Street. You can probably watch this clip on YouTube, but there's a scene in there where this shady broker, Jordan Belfort, is on his opulent, kind of his excessive uh, yacht. He's in this, you know, it's got a helicopter kind of, you know, this kind of yacht. And he's out there in the harbor. Leonardo DiCaprio plays the part of this broker, this kind of shady broker, uh, manipulator, market manipulator. And he's being investigated by an FBI agent. And the agent comes on the boat to kind of question him. It's kind of at the beginning of this investigation and they have this dialogue and this exchange. And Belfort, of course, is sitting there, you know, in this opulent yacht. There's lobster and shrimp and all this kind of stuff. And he's living this great life. And then here's this, you know, FBI agent uh, in kind of, a, you know, a suit that he got from J.C. Penney's kind of thing. You know, you get this clear, this, this kind of, this difference of power and social success. And there's this conversation that goes on, and Belfort you know, asks the agent, how much do you bring down a year? This took place in the 80s. And uh, you know, the agent says, you know, he says to the agent, about 50, 60K, is that what you make a year? So unfair. You public servants are treated so unfairly. And then he goes on to tell him about this opportunity that he gave to one of his interns who needed some money, you know, didn't have enough money to take care of his mother, who needed a surgery. And he, he provided this opportunity, and this intern netted $500,000. And he told the agent, you know, I'm the kind of guy who can give people those types of opportunities. And of course, the implied offer was obvious, and the agent picks up on it and says, you know, you're, you're, can you just say that again so I can record that because you're trying to bribe me, right? You're trying to use this power over me. And here it was this power of rewards, the power to give someone something. It's a subtle power. It's a nuanced power, but it is power nonetheless. And like the other forms of power we have looked at, it can be used for nefarious purposes, but it can also be used for good purposes, right? We wouldn't speak against this type of power, the power of rewards. You can use uh, financial rewards in a constructive way to incentivize employees. If you are a parent, <laughs> you know about the power of rewards because you're using that power all the time to get compliance among your children and uh, to help them to develop and to learn incentives and how to respond to them. But what about Jesus? Did Jesus use this type of power, this power of reward? Well, of course, right? 
The scriptures are filled with these type of examples of Jesus suggesting that obedience, that following him will yield a reward. Luke 6.38, give and it will be given to you. Luke 6.22 and 23, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you, revile you and defame you on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy for surely your reward is great in heaven. The Gospels are filled with examples of Jesus using this power of reward. Again, I would argue that it's always used not to bribe people, not to cajole them, but to set before them the, the wondrous hope and ability to achieve human flourishing, to live well. Jesus used this form of power, the power of rewards. You get the picture, right? I could go on this morning. I could cite other forms of commonly experienced power, and you would see corollaries of those in the ministry and work of Jesus Christ as mighty God. After all, Jesus being part of the Trinity, he is omnipotent, fully God, fully man. But the question I haven't answered this morning is how is this power unique? I've shown you how it's similar to other forms of power we encounter in society, in our world, but how is it unique? Now, I've hinted at it a little bit in one sense. Uh, you could argue the fact that he never manipulates, exploits, or misuses his power for selfish ends or for his own purposes or for obviously wicked purposes. That is certainly a difference, but there's more to it than that. There are powers that are exclusive to the mighty God, that are not shared with us, that are incommunicable, if you will. And I believe we find one of those powers. Perhaps the most poignant, powerful example of it would be in John chapter 10, verse 18. This power of the mighty God, this unique power possessed by Jesus, by him and him alone. John 10, verse 18, Jesus refers to the laying down and the taking back up of his life. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it back up again. Napoleon may have been able to pick up the crown of France with his sword, but he died on May 5, 1821, while exiled and in British custody, and he remains quite dead, I believe, until this day. He's dead dead. Napoleon was very effective at taking life, but he could not give life. As humans, we are very effective at taking life. King Herod, at Jesus' birth, took the lives of many children. At the cross, Pilate had the power to take the life of Christ and, those, and the thieves beside him. History is filled with the taking of lives. Auschwitz, the killing fields, Rwanda, Darfur, from unborn children to people of color to indigenous peoples to young men fighting of fighting age to the elderly, we know well the power of taking life. We live, as the Pope once reminded us, in a culture of death. 
many have possessed the power to take life. But only God has the power to give life. Yes, a mother may give birth. A doctor may resuscitate a patient. A politician may stay an execution. A scientist may build a cell from scratch. A computer whiz may develop a simulated life. But only Jesus, the mighty God, has the power to lay down and pick up his life. And in doing so, exercise the extraordinary power to give eternal life to those he has drawn to himself. As Jesus notes just a few verses earlier in that same chapter 10 of John, verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That, beloved, is what makes the power of the one who is called mighty God unique. That's his unique power. Now, if that's not enough, let me give you one other mind-blowing fun fact. One of the things that people do when they have power is they don't like to share power. Well, the extraordinary thing about Christ, this mighty God, is that he shares this life-giving power with his church, with his people, with you and me. Just before his ascension, Jesus spoke to his disciples. He spoke to his church. And by extension to all of us, he said, But you, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You will receive this power. Walter Brueggemann reflects on this verse. He writes this, the early church entrusted with the power of, the early church is entrusted with the power of God. As witnesses, they are able to stand before Roman authorities and attest to an alternative truth about the world. The world they describe is a world in which the divine power of healing, forgiveness, restoration, and well-being is on the loose. That presence they have seen embodied in this mighty God. Now listen to this. Their telling of it, their telling of it continues to make that power available. In the face of such testimony, the chaos of the sea and the destructive force of unclean spirits have no chance. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying the church has power. It is a derivative power, but it is real nonetheless. It is real power. And that power comes to us. It is manifested in the church through what? Through the telling of it, as Brueggemann says. What is that? That is the sharing and proclaiming of the good news of Jesus Christ. That is our power. Paul said that he was not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Why? Because it's the power of God unto salvation. The power is in the telling of it. And beloved, this is how this text comes home to challenge you and me during this Advent season. Particularly during this unusual Advent, series, Advent season. Because the mighty God is coming again. He's coming to assess what we have done with this power he has shared with us. 
That's what Advent reminds us of, the coming of the King. And the parable of the talents reminds us of how that plays out, right? That parable in which the wealthy landowner goes away and he leaves his money and trust to various people. And some of them went and invested it and it propagated and it grew and it increased. And then there was the one who buried it, who did nothing with it, who just gave it back as he had received it. And how was that one treated by the king when the landowner, when he returned? Not too well. When Jesus gives us something, right? To whom much is given, much is expected. We have been given this power. And the challenge we have, beloved, is what are we doing with it? The power is in the telling of it. Now, right now, we are restricted in many ways from gathering together as we used to gather. And we are all spread apart. And some of you are isolated. Some of you are alone. You still have this power. The power to go tell it to share it, to display the love of Christ, the gospel, the good news. Don't be ashamed of it. Don't hide it under a bushel. Don't bury it in the ground. What can you be doing right now to reach out to a neighbor, to reach out to someone seeking, to reach out to another member of the church, to share this power of the good news? End your isolation by reaching out, because the power is in the telling of it. So let's go tell it. Let's go tell it. Let's tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere. Let's go tell it on the mountain that our Jesus Christ is born. And remember the hope we have, the assurance we have, as Brueggemann said it, in the face of such testimony, the chaos of the sea and the destructive force of unclean spirits have no chance. Because our God it's not feeble. He's not weak. He is mighty God. Jesus, the one who is mighty God. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Lord, we thank you so much for the power you have shared with us. And may we use that power as you used it for the liberation of people, for the setting free of those who are in bondage, for the healing of the sick, for the feeding of the poor, for the helping of those who are in need, for providing hope in the proclamation that there is forgiveness of sins, for you have the authority and the power to forgive our sins. Father, may we know the power of God and the scriptures, and may we tell it. May we not be ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation. Hear our prayer, we pray. In Jesus' name, the one who is the mighty God. Amen. Amen.